Um, good morning. Good morning again. Um, just let me take a drink of water real quick. I want to welcome you guys um, to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing faith, building community, and in the hope of Jesus. Uh, last week, do you guys remember where we were last week in our sermon series? No one remembers? Genesis, not quite. <laughs> the book after Genesis. <laughs> not Leviticus, Exodus. But Leviticus is where we are today. Thank you, Chet. Yeah, that's what he meant uh, to tell us where we were today. Um, yeah, we just finished last week the book of Leviticus. And so we, we finished our last story in Leviticus. And today we're going to be exploring um, the book of, of wait, no, Exodus. See, I'm confused now. I don't know where we're at. This is confusing. Um, there's a lot of books in the Bible, 66 of them, so it's easy to get them confused. Um, there, um, is there 66? 65? Oh, man, someone Google it, all right? When you get it, when you get the answer, you let me know, all right? We're, we're in our series uh, called The Greatest Story and uh, uh, the Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And uh, throughout this series, we're exploring a couple of different things. We're exploring um, basically Genesis all the way through Revelation, all 60-something books of the Bible. And uh, we're exploring the stories of Jesus and how, how his narrative interacts with the stories in the Bible and interacts with our stories, and how uh, the story of Jesus really flips the expectations of the time to bring us new revelations about who he is and, and, and what he does. And so we are today now in everybody's favorite book of the, of the Bible, uh, Leviticus. How, how many of you guys love the book of Leviticus? This is like your number one. This is like your go-to. Every day you do devotions, you're like, yeah, Leviticus is it for me. No one? <laughs> That's okay. Um, if, you, if you've ever read through the Bible, um, you're probably much like me, and you probably just glossed over Leviticus or skimmed through it or skipped it even. Um, Leviticus isn't always the most exciting book of the Bible, but, um, but for me it is one of the most exciting um, and, and, and I will show you why. And we have quite a few verses uh, today to go through, so we just want to jump right in. Uh, how many of you guys have actually read, because we have our Greatest Story reading plan. If you don't know what that is, um, we want to encourage you to engage the Bible and really read the story ahead of time. So every Monday on our Facebook page and on our website, um, we post, and, it's, and there's a link on our newsletter as well, we post uh, the reading plan. So basically the verses and the chapters we're going to be reading for this week's sermon. We also post some expanded reading to help you understand the context of the story that we're reading. And we post some questions to help you um, guide your discussion and guide your reading so you can dive into the Bible a bit more. And we encourage you guys uh, to start some small groups um, and discuss it with friends, discuss it with family, and, and to really get the reading going. So how many of you guys have actually read the reading for this week? It's quite a few verses. Thank you. High five. Because <laughs> um, I was going to say, if, if everyone read the reading, we could skip the verses today. Uh, but since very few of you read them, we, we're going to have to read them uh, today. And we have quite a few of them. So, um, so hang on. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1. Uh, starting, we're going we're to read Leviticus chapter 1 to Leviticus chapter 4. Are you guys ready today? <laughs> no one's ready today. Leviticus chapter 1. Don't worry, we're not reading the whole thing. And if you don't have your Bibles, we, we do have it available uh, for you on the screen here today. So Leviticus chapter 1. And it says this, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. 
You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse 10 says, If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, uh, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash his blood against the sides of the altar. And then Leviticus 1 continues, and it says, if the, if the offering you're presenting is, is, uh, is an offering of, of a bird, this is how you're supposed to do it. So let's skip Leviticus chapter 2. Um, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1 says, let's move quickly here. Um, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and the oil, together with all of the incense, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and to his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Skip down to verse 11. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast. You are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord, but you may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all of your grain offerings with salt, not bland. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire, put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with all of the incense as a food offering presented to the Lord. You guys following so far? You guys probably don't know where you're going yet, but you're following. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 3 says this. We're only going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, Leviticus 3, if your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Leviticus 3. Uh, Leviticus 4. This is where the majority of our verses are going to come in today. I've got to take a sip real quick. A lot of verses. Thank you, thank you. Leviticus 4 says this. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bring guilt and bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect, as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Verse 4, he is to present this bull at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hands on the head of the, uh, and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He should remove all of the fat from the bull of the sin offering, all of the fat that is connected to the internal organs, both kidneys and the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. Sounds like a recipe. Um, just, as the fat, just as the fat is removed from the ox, sacrificed as a fellowship offering, then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all of its flesh, as well as the head and legs, the internal organs and the intestines, that is, all of the rest of the bull, he must take outside of the camp to a place ceremonially clean, where the ashes are thrown, and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. Verse 13. If the, whole, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, 
Even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the bull's blood into the tent of meeting. He shall dip his finger into the blood, sprinkle it before the Lord seven times in front of the curtain. He is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all of the fat from it and burn it on the altar and do this, do with this bull just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the community and they will be forgiven. Then he shall take the bull outside of the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. This is the sin offering for the community. We're not going to read the rest, uh, but the rest has stipulations for if a leader sins or if an individual member of the community sins. Um, but we are going to read the last two verses of chapter 4, and that's verses 34 and 35. And it says this, Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. They shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. Okay, um, that's a lot of verses. Glad you guys haven't yet, left yet. Uh, if, you, if you are new, if this is your first time, don't worry, we don't read 101 verses every single sermon. Um, but some of these verses are very important, and, and we do want to go through them because they reveal to us something very important about God. Um, there's a lot of repetition, if you'll notice, in the book of Leviticus. And, and the reason there's a lot of repetition is because a lot of these traditions were, were originally passed orally. They weren't written down. Um, so much like any song, if you know the catchiest songs usually have the most repetition. Uh, so for the people to really understand what God was saying to them, there was a lot of repetition so they could easily memorize it and, and just continue on the repetition. And, and there's, there's something that you might not really see at first glance in the book of Leviticus. Um, because when we look at these verses, we look at this, these verses from our 21st century perspective, and, and we might see um, these verses as something cruel and something barbaric and something um, crazy that we're not really used to. You know, we, we read about the blood being collected, and, and we read about blood being poured out in specific places. Um, we see uh, the priest dipping his finger in the blood and, and sprinkling it on the front of the curtain and, and on, on the horns of the altar. And, and what we're really seeing in Leviticus chapters 1 through 4 is this, this common thing. Is it's blood and, and death. We're seeing a lot of that stuff in Leviticus. And, and I'm not sure, but I'm sure that for most of us that eat meat, if you're a meat eater like myself, uh, our primary hunting grounds for our food is usually a... a grocery store or a supermarket, right? We're not really going out into the wilderness to hunt uh, for our food. And, and, and if by chance um, you, you, you do, um, you are probably one of the rare few who actually goes out to, to kill their food for their food. We typically don't do that, right? Most of us, most of us uh, likely don't go out and, and kill for our own food. And, and if we have, then um, the question is then, have you cleaned your own food, right? Because if we have taken that step, then have we done the cleaning and and you know like my mom when she buys a, a whole chicken i don't know how she she grew up on a farm so she knows all this stuff she knows how to like gut the chicken and clean it and defeather it and everything she's pretty crazy I don't, I don't know how she does it but i couldn't do that i couldn't defeather a bird and and gut it like i mean i'll cook meat but that's as far as it goes right like killing it and it's its own hyperbole or whatever you want to call it but i just can't physically take the life myself i can't clean it myself it just kind of grosses me out turns me off uh, so when we read these verses you might be a little turned off from the story 
You might feel kind of a little awkward. You might feel a little weird. And, 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 and this is perfectly normal for us because we're not used to this. We're not in the same traditions that they were. We're not surrounded by the culture that they were surrounded by. So some of the imagery here in Leviticus is a little hard for us uh, to grasp. But when we look at um, Leviticus from an outside perspective, uh, we, we may find a picture of, of a God that we don't associate with as much. We might find a picture of a bloody and violent God that requires animal sacrifice. Maybe you don't associate uh, with that God. But there are some foundational truths, though, that, that I hope we, we can understand about the Bible if we're ever going to understand uh, some of the messy bits in the Bible. Because there's a lot of messy bits in the Bible. There's a lot of crazy stuff that today for us is just like, that is just too much. And, and for us as, 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 as lovers of the gospel and lovers of Jesus, we're just like, well, wait, how do we separate um, the two distinctions of the New and the Old Testament? Uh, but there's something that we need to understand um, if we're going to understand all of those ugly and messy bits and bloody and, and violent bits in the context of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand first and foremost is that, that God um, works within the context of his people. Do you guys get that? God works within the context of his people. And so God has to speak our language if we are going to understand him, right? If I started speaking a different language in this sermon, you guys would likely not understand me. I'm speaking in English because the majority of us speak English and we, and, and, and we understand that. And, and so God has to do the same. He, he has to speak in our language for us to understand him. Um, but God doesn't all, only speak in our spoken language. God also speaks in our social language, in our religious language, in our historical language. Uh, God speaks all the forms of communication that aren't just vor- verbal, the minutia of our, of our society and our culture. God communicates through that. And so how we communicate, not just verbally, what symbols we relate to, uh, what our hearts and minds respond to, has changed over the centuries. We don't relate to the same things that, did, that they did 1,000, 2,000 years ago, right? And, and, and this is God. God is communicating in the context of his people. So that means that God is going to speak differently to us today than he spoke to the Israelites five, six, seven thousand 7,000 years ago. Um, but this is, this is also important to understand. Um, the message of God does not change. There's a distinction, right? The message of God does not change. And while the message of, uh, of God does not change, the message that he is trying to restore broken humanity back into relationship with him, the way that God communicates that message throughout history in ways every generation can understand has changed, right? And it's something that we call uh, principle versus application. A principle is, is the message. It's, it's a foundational truth from beginning to the end. It doesn't change. But the application is how we learn or apply that truth, right? In Leviticus here, there's an application. Um, and so what God communicates doesn't change, but how he communicates does. So although the application of something in the Bible may not make sense to us today from our viewpoint, we can still peel back what may be confusing to understand the principle of what God is communicating. Do you guys get that so far? Because that's foundational. We can't, under, we can't begin to understand Leviticus unless, and some of the rest of the Bible unless we understand that, that God communicates in the context of his people. So we move on personally now from the application of animal sacrifice, but the principle that sin requires a sacrifice is still part of the message God is communicating. Right? The principle that God is looking to forgive us is still part of the message that God is communicating, even though we don't apply and learn that message through the system of the temple and animal sacrifice. Um, so now that we understand that bit, we can take a, a look at Leviticus just a little closer. And, and this is what our first lesson is 
for today. There's only two. Uh, the first lesson for today is there is intimacy in the offering. There is intimacy in the offering. And I want to explain this um, because the Hebrew word for offering, I, you guys might not know it, um, the Hebrew word for offering is korban. Say it with me. Korban. No one, no one else wants to say it with me. It's okay. Korban, right? Korban is the Hebrew word uh, for offering. And, and, and korban actually means to draw near or to approach. Okay? That's what korban means. Korban means to draw near, uh, to approach. In Hebrew, there's an entirely separate word for sacrifice. There's a word for sacrifice that specifically relates to the taking of a life, the taking of an animal life. They have a separate word for that. Um, but the word that is chosen here in Leviticus for offering, which is still a, a type of sacrifice, uh, is korban, which means to draw near or to approach. You see it in Genesis and in Exodus. You see it in all these different places. When you, see, uh, when you read the story of Jacob as he, as he approaches uh, Esau, as they come to meet together, it's the same word, korban. Uh, when God approaches uh, Abraham and, and the, as the three visitors and they come near and they draw together, it's the same word, Korban. So in Leviticus, the Hebrew word for offering is korban, which means to draw near, to approach. The author is using the exact same word that you would use to describe two people physically approaching each other. Do you guys get that? And you got to understand that at the time of Leviticus, at the time of the Israelites, at that point, um, they pictured the gods as very distant, very detached, very uh, aloof from what was going on. And so the gods were, were demanding. They were constantly needing animal sacrifices to be appeased and to be made happy. And, and in reality, in those times, you never really understood where you stood with gods. You didn't really understand where your place was, where you were in their good favors or in their bad favors. Um, but the idea of Leviticus changes everything. It's the idea that you can bring these offerings, these korban, and you can draw near to God. Something entirely revolutionary to the time. They didn't think of that. The gods were far away. You offered an offering to bring the offering to them. But you didn't approach God. It was this at a distance kind of thing. But in Leviticus, they use the word korban, which is to draw near, to approach. So imagine this system. You, you think of a God far away, but in Leviticus it says bring an offering, a korban, and you draw close to God. And in Leviticus, you don't offer a sacrifice to a God far away, but you draw near. And what this, what this book paints a picture of is of a very different God than the gods they were used to. Because you can come near to this God. Because you can approach this God. You can relate and have a relationship with this God. They didn't have relationships with God the way we perceive relationships with God because it was this kind of master-servant mentality. But God is doing something different. He says, I want to approach and come near I want to sit down and I want to have a meal with you. I want to commune with you. I want to be with you. And, and that's, that's, that's what God is relating, that there is intimacy in the offering. And people at the time also believed that the gods could strike you down at any moment, right? If you happen to offend the gods, if you made an improper gesture to the gods, if you offered a sacrifice carelessly, people believed that the gods could strike you at any moment. If you made one mistake, it could be your last. But the book of Leviticus not only highlights the idea that you can draw near to God, it also gives specific instructions on how to draw near to God through the offerings, through the sacrifice. There was no guesswork. 
There was no wondering. There was no uh, questioning if you had done things right. There was no wondering if the sacrifice would, would appease or please the gods. The details in Leviticus would have had a significant calming effect in reassuring you that you had done things correctly, reassuring you that you weren't bringing unnecessary judgment on yourself. This is what Rob Bell says about the book of Leviticus. He says, a much deeper level at the heart of Leviticus is the insistence that human action matters, that it is holy, that there is weight and significance to what people do in the world. In a time and place, he says, where human life was fragile and fleeting, the people were often victims of great violence. To insist on the dignity and holiness of human action was a revolutionary idea. He says, Leviticus is a revolutionary step forward in the human consciousness of the time, inviting people to consider a whole new conception of the divine. A whole new conception of the divine. You see, Leviticus is a revolutionary book in suggesting that you can even approach and draw near to God. Something we take for granted today. Something we don't realize that people didn't think of it that way before. And Leviticus changes that. You can approach and draw near to God. You can korban. There is intimacy in the offering. And we read in these verses in, in Leviticus, um, Leviticus 4 to 5, it, it, it dis, or Leviticus 1 to 4, describes four of the five different types of offerings the Israelites could make to God. Chapters 1 to 4 talk about the burnt offerings and, and the grain and the meal offerings, the, um, the peace offerings, the sin offerings. And chapter 5 uh, has the fifth type of offering. We're just going to read it very quickly, just two verses, 17 and 19. Chapter 5, verses 17 and 19 says this, If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. They are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the wrongs they have committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. The priest will make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering, and they will be forgiven. So there are five different types of offerings in the book of Leviticus. We're just going to go through them really, really briefly. Uh, There's a chart right there. Um, The burnt offering. The burnt offering was specifically to give thanks to God. It expressed a desire to maintain God's favor and was also generally used in sin offerings for the general atonement of sin. And this this is crazy too because um, the burnt offering is not a new idea for Leviticus or for the Israelites. There's, there's multiple types of burnt offerings all over uh, the ancient Near East. But the difference between the book of Leviticus and the rest of the practices that the rest of the religions made was that in the Canaanite tradition, which is kind of what the Israelites came out of, in the Canaanite tradition, what they offered as burnt offerings was their own children. They offer their own children as burnt offerings to appease God. And so God is now is working within that context, working within that system, and says, wait a minute, we don't want that. We don't want these human sacrifices, so instead we'll, we'll transition it uh, to, to animal sacrifices. And so the, the burnt offering changes, even for, even for the Israelites at that, t- at that point in time, is also revolutionary just for that sake in itself. You don't have to sacrifice your own children to appease God. There, there's, there's other ways um, to do it. The meal or the grain offering um, was, was an expression of a devotion uh, to God. And you were recognizing God's goodness and his providence. And something interesting about the meal and the grain offering is that not all of it was burnt up. 
Uh, if, if, you, if you paid attention to, to the reading in chapter 2, not all of the offering was, was burnt. A portion of the, of the meal offering or the grain offering was left what we would call alive. It was, it, was, it was a live offering. And then it was presented to the priests as their meal. A portion of it was burnt, but a portion of it was left alive or unburnt and given to the priests. The third type of offering uh, is the peace offering. And the peace offering includes thanksgiving offerings, free will offerings, and wave offerings. And these offerings are later discussed in Leviticus chapter 7, which you won't read today. Um, but the purpose of the peace offering was to consecrate a meal between two or more parties before God. And these people shared that meal together in fellowship of peace and a commitment to each other's future prosperity. That's what a peace offering was. The fourth is a sin offering. Sin offerings were made for general atonement. Uh, it can be tricky to distinguish between sin offering and guilt offering at first glance, um, but sin offering was made for a general atonement. They were made in respect to the imperfect nature of humanity. The primary purpose of this offering, the sin offering, is not to atone for specific sins, but rather to purify oneself for re-entering the presence of God, to make oneself clean before God. And, and this made possible, the sin offering made possible, the continued fellowship between the presence of God and his people. The guilt offering is the fifth offering in Leviticus 5. Uh, the purpose of the guilt offering was to make uh, atonement or reparations. This is a, a key word for the guilt offering, reparations for one's sin. Um, one commentator says this, unlike the English word guilt, this does not refer to a matter of one's own consciousness or conscience, but rather to something someone owes on account of sin. The guilt offering specifically refers to something someone owes on account of sin. So the guilt offering causes the individual to look beyond the sin to the damage the sin caused. The guilt offering is also called the reparation offering because the person had not only sought forgiveness, but also first had to pay full restitution. If you notice in Leviticus 5, there is a, a portion where it said, if you bring a, a ram, whether male or female, of the appropriate price, there's a price associated with the guilt offering because they need to know that, that there is a cost to the damage that sin does. Uh, and so these people also in the guilt offering paid an additional percentage uh, to the priests. Um, so the burnt and the meal, the meal and the grain and the peace offerings, those first three offerings are, are primarily made to maintain fellowship with God. They maintain the fellowship. It's peace, it's a live offering, it's a burnt offering. And sin and guilt offerings were offered primarily to restore fellowship with God. Okay, two different things. Maintain fellowship with God and restore fellowship with God. Because first, we've got to realize that we are sinful as human nature. We sin uh, individually and specifically, so we've got to atone and repent for those sins. Those restore us with God. And then the, third off the three first offerings are the offerings that maintain a relationship with God. And I know that for a lot of you, this probably really isn't very interesting. This is... <laughs> Hopefully it is to some of you. Maybe this isn't your favorite sermon, and, and that's perfectly okay. Um, because when I first read it, I wasn't very interested either. Uh, but when you look at this from the viewpoint of the cross, yeah. things change. Yeah. It becomes a little bit more interesting. It becomes actually rather incredibly interesting because the entire system of sacrifice and every specific offering that was given pointed to what God would do through the personhood of Jesus. The entire system, that's what it was for. It was the shadow to point to what Jesus would do on the cross. And you've got to remember that sin requires a sacrifice. That's what the system teaches us. Uh, but what the sanctuary system also taught us throughout the years and the centuries is that no number of animals 
could ever really pay the price once and for all. They had to continue to offer because the animal life wasn't sufficient to pay for sin once and for all. So this is the plan. Then Jesus, the very Son of God, comes to stand in our place, stand in place of the offering, and becomes the sacrifice so that through his death, we might find forgiveness once and for all. This is our final lesson for today. There is salvation in the offering. There's salvation in the offering. You see, in the descriptions of Leviticus, uh, in especially the descriptions of, of Leviticus uh, 4 and 5, the descriptions of the sin offerings, you'll find this pattern. Uh, it says it three times in Leviticus chapter 4 and four times in Leviticus chapter 5, and this pattern is five words, and they will be forgiven. After every sin offering, it's this pattern, and they will be forgiven. You see, the offerings, the offerings and the sacrifices were made as a means by which we might be forgiven from sin. And so Jesus becomes each of those sacrifices that we might be able to fully draw near to God. This might be a, a little small for those of you at the back. If you, if you want a copy of this um, chart, feel free to talk to me afterwards. But there's an outline of the five different types of offerings that we read in Leviticus uh, chapters 1 through 5 on the left side, and then how Jesus fulfills every single one of those offerings. You see, the burnt offering was the offering that is fully consumed by the flames. It's, it's completely gone. And Jesus surrenders himself completely to God's purposes, and his life is consumed in his commitment through death on the cross. There's some verses as well you can read to that kind of allude to this, this sacrifice thing too. The meal or the grain offering was the offering where part of the offering is left living or not consumed. Jesus offers up his entire life as a living sacrifice to God where he does God's will throughout his time here on earth. The peace offering. You guys remember what the peace offering means? It's a, it's a reconciliation between two parties. Peace was made where there was previously tension or broken relationships. So Jesus made peace with God on behalf of man. The barrier that sin erects, the barrier that sin creates between us and God is broken through the sacrifice of Jesus. Then the sin offering was to, make to, uh, was to make atonement for sin in general, for the fallen nature of humanity. It reconciles us to God so that we can have communion with God. And so Jesus took on sin itself, sin in its entirety, and he nailed it to the cross, forever destroying the power that sin had over us. And the guilt offering. The guilt offering was to make atonement for specific sins, to restore, and more importantly is reparations, to heal the damage that our sin causes between us and God and us and our fellow men and those people around us. You see, Jesus not only took on the whole of sin, but he also took on every individual sin to bring forgiveness and healing for the damages that our sins have caused. See, there's a price associated to the guilt offering, and Jesus is the price paid for our sins. The second lesson, there is salvation in the offering. I'm going to invite the band to come on up as we close. Um, like I said, God speaks to the people in his context, and, and we've moved on from this application, and, and we don't have to offer these same types of sacrifices anymore because of what God did through Jesus on the cross. What God did through Jesus was satisfy the requirements 
of every single one of those offerings, the burnt, the meal, the peace, the sin, and the guilt offerings. He has become the whole of the offerings so that we might have peace with God and be forgiven for both our sinful nature and our individual sin. You see, Leviticus doesn't always seem like the most exciting book at first glance. But once you start examining Leviticus through the lens of Jesus and the work he has done on the cross, it becomes revolutionary. Because not only does it flip the societal narrative of the time working within the culture to counteract some of the broken and messed up sinful practices of the time, but it also points us to the freedom and the forgiveness that we find in the sacrifice of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Leviticus helped the ancient Near Eastern people to draw near to God. And what it does for us is it helps us to both draw near to God, but also to understand the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. The book of Leviticus is all about offerings, but it's so much more than just what face value can sometimes portray. Because in this book, the book of Leviticus, we learn that there is intimacy in the offering. That offerings, offerings were about drawing near to God, something that was not conceptualized in the other religions at the time of the book of Leviticus. Through this book, we learn that God is not distant and detached, but someone who longs to have an intimate and personal relationship with each and every one of us, with his creation. And the amazing thing about Leviticus is that it shows that he is so concerned with the sanctity of that relationship that he gave the Israelites specific instructions on the offerings so they could come and draw near to God without worry of retaliation or retribution or being struck down. God is concerned with the sanctity of our relation. In Leviticus, we also learn that there is salvation in the offering. You know, for the Israelites, uh, the offerings were, were, were done to be made right with God. It is how they were restored and maintained in fellowship with God. For the Israelites, this was their salvation. But what we see now, what we see now is how Jesus has become each and every one of those offerings, all five of them. And it's now through Jesus that we can be restored and maintained in fellowship with God. Amen? You know, through the offerings, the Israelites could draw near to God, but now through Jesus, we can also draw near to God. And through Jesus, as Isaiah describes him, the perfect lamb of God, through his sacrifice on the cross, we find forgiveness, restoration, and most importantly, salvation. If I could describe a theme, if I could summarize Leviticus in a phrase, it would be in these four words. They will be forgiven they will be forgiven. The amazing thing is that through Jesus, we have been. Amen.